according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me for the first time now in Proverbs 22. We're beginning a new chapter today, Proverbs 22. Remember, we have today and next week, the last two Wednesday mornings for a while. Um, just watch your email and stay tuned for further announcements because uh, there's the Ukraine trip. There's also the cataract surgery after the Ukraine trip. So uh, we'll, see, uh, we'll see how that goes. Proverbs 22, a good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. So we have some money issues here in the first couple of verses and then uh, beyond. Let me open with prayer and then we'll kind of give an introduction. This is a a very interesting chapter and uh, we've had a lot of tedium, I think, from chapter 10 onwards where uh, it's like, well, here we go again, here we go again. Uh, But this chapter actually introduces some interesting things and, and really serves as a hinge. So I'll be describing that here for you in a moment. Let's open in prayer, though, and ask for our Father's blessing on our time in His Word today, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness, asking, Father, for uh, your blessing upon our time of study, and uh, just thanking you for Uh, these past several years now that we've been going through Proverbs. Thank you for being faithful, Father. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is a series that began in 2014, if you can believe it, and I don't know where the years fly by because it just seems like yesterday we were wrapping up Life of Christ, and that was a 10-year study, and I didn't know how long Proverbs was going to take us. But we've done 21 chapters, there's 10 to go, and, uh, and I think also the chapters in coming up, from really from 25 and following, are going to be shorter and uh, quicker to work our way through. Um, I say that, and we'll, we'll find out. But um, anyway, we'll see if uh, Proverbs ends up being a, uh, being a, you know, ends up being more than a 10-year study, a 12-year study, or whatever the case may be. I have a slideshow ready to go. In fact, it's up and running. You just can't see it yet. Um, Chapter 22 really marks as a hinge. Uh, There is a thematic break after verse 16. And in some respects, it's really unfortunate that uh, chapter 22 is as long as it is. Uh, It would be, uh, might even be a better chapter break to make it after verse 16 and uh, take verses 17 and following as a separate chapter. But um, there, uh, the chapterfication uh, was really done uh, by the Hebrews anyway in their manuscripts um, in different ways in different eras. When you're talking about the Masoretic tradition, when you're talking about other traditions, uh, there's clues, chapterfication and versification clues that we have in uh, not only the Hebrew but also in the Septuagint Greek and other, other renderings as well. Uh, so there's a lot of detail that I guess... I won't get into this morning, but uh, when we talk about chapters 23 and 24, really you have to back up to 2217 and include that as a, as a section. I'm going to describe some of those breaks for you here this morning, but Proverbs 22 has a lot of verses we've been looking forward to, a lot of uh, things that, of course, 22.6 
is a very famous uh, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And I mean, when you tell somebody that you're teaching Proverbs, that's one of the first verses they think about because they've been desperately clinging to that verse for some time. And puzzles in that verse anyway, because that verse is missing in, uh, in the Septuagint. It's not in. The Septuagint Greek has verses 1 through 5 and then verse 7 and following. And then the Septuagint tradition has um, really different material. Uh, the, the manuscript puzzles in this chapter uh, are, are beyond what we're going to tackle today. But I will make mention of them as text-critical exercises as we come to them. We don't, we're not fearful of a flawed Bible and we're not afraid of of a bad tradition. We just want to recognize the manuscript glitches where they are, deal with them as, as you must in any, in any issue. But there is a significant thematic break after verse 16. Now if you're reading a New American Standard Bible this morning, you have no clues because you've got a pericope heading at the top of the chapter. Uh, all the versification seems pretty normal. Uh, you'll find bold for paragraph headings uh, and yes, verse 17 is bold, and so is verse 22 and verse 24 and verse 26. So you can kind of spot with uh, what the publisher chose to do there by putting those verses in bold. 28 is also bold, 29 is also bold. And so those are slightly, um, I mean, those are helpful in uh, identifying the, the poetry of the text, at least as far as the, the New American Standard made some interpretive decisions in that. Uh, but they don't put a pericope heading in between verse 16 and verse 17. If you're reading an NIV this morning, you've got a huge pericope heading adjustment there. Or um, a, a Christian Standard Bible or a Holman Christian Standard Bible. Different, uh, different things there. Let me just uh, pull this up and we can look at this a little bit. If, um, by the way, there's a keyboard shortcut if you're using Logos and you're in a Bible text like this, you can write arrow and it takes you to your next, um, your next Bible. And so here is the Christian Standard Bible. And as you scroll down, you'll notice in between verse 16 and 17, make it a little larger there, they put in a pericope heading. They put in a little publisher's blurb, if you will. Okay, uh, Words of the wise. And they put that heading in there because their translators, their translation team felt that this is a significant uh, break. As, uh, as I said, a significant thematic break after verse 16. And so they indicated that in the uh, margins of the Bible. Likewise, the, uh, the New King James Version. The New King James Version there. Um, maybe someone who's sitting here this morning, it's a popular Bible. Um, has a, a heading in there called the sayings of the wise. And there's 30 of them, by the way, or depending on how you number them. And that's, there's arguments there too. Um, 30 sayings of the wise. It's the NIV that really went uh, um, off the rails with this. So here's the Lexham English Bible, puts in words of the wise. This one didn't. Most of the Hebrew text don't. There's a Septuagint. Let me just exit that and open up an NIV. I rarely use the NIV. Here we go. The NIV went the furthest 
Okay? Because not only did they put a pericope heading at the top, sayings of the wise, but they numbered them, 30 sayings of the wise, and then they broke them up almost like Psalm 119, almost like putting little <coughs> indicators in the, uh, the verse division. So saying one, saying two, saying three, saying four, and we can scroll down to find all 30 of them there. So it is, it is interesting that, that different Bibles have recognized that this portion of, uh, of, Psalm 20, of uh, Proverbs 22 has a significant break after verse 16. And I'll be introducing that a little bit more uh, as we get closer to that point. And it's also kind of nice because I've kind of had in my mind um, maybe getting all the way to chapter 25 before or through the Bible year. But if we don't get all the way to, to chapter 25... It's not so bad because this is another section all on its own and it would make for another nice place to stop. So anyway, just trying to, trying to keep an eye on, on our progress as we uh, reach the end of this year and, and get ready for the through the Bible year that, uh, that we're going to have. All right. Let me just fly this out and we'll get back to what we were looking at. There we go, float this panel. So chapter 22 contains a significant thematic break after verse 16. Many scholars view Proverbs 10.1 to 22.16 as the primary Solomonic collection canonized in his lifetime. Okay, And, you, and it's been a while since we introduced the book of, of uh, Proverbs, and it's been a while since we launched into Proverbs 10, okay? Remember, we took chapters 1 through 9 as a unit, and I called chapters 1 through 9 parental wisdom. And in those chapters, you have so many of those my son uh, exhortations, pleading with a with, uh, with young man, my son, listen to your father's instruction. Do not despise your mother's instruction. And in, in those first nine chapters, you have really a core collection of Proverbs that um, reflects, I think, reflects David and Bathsheba, reflects their impartation of wisdom to Solomon as a young man. And then he composed them and he put them in a collection and that was separate from the, uh, the second collection, which is 10.1 through 22.16. Now, uh, when I first gave you the overall outline to the book of, of Proverbs, we kind of just kept it simple. We kept it in three large areas. Chapters 1 through 9 we called parental wisdom. Chapters 10 through 24 we called um, uh, personal and public wisdom. That's where we've been, personal and public wisdom. And I'm going to keep that outline. I'm not going to change now. We've been doing it for five years now. Um, we're going to keep chapters 10 through 24 as a unit for our purposes in our study. But just understand that there's a lot of scholars that put that break in there between um, verses 16 and 17 within the midst of chapter 22. They put that break in there and they make that third collection something entirely different, Okay, the 30 sayings of the wise and, uh, and the issues there. And then, of course, the additional Proverbs that got added in the days of Hezekiah. Uh, the addition, they were Solomonic. They just weren't canonized until the days of, of uh, Hezekiah. They were added to the canon at that point. Remember, there's significant editing in Psalms and Proverbs before the final form of these canonical works was, was uh, accepted by the Jewish people. 
So, many scholars view 10.1 through 22.16 as the primary Solomonic collection canonized in his lifetime. And then possibly in the years after that, then the, the chapter 1 through 9 collection got added and got placed in front because it was from his youth that he wrote those. And then the, the section that was added in Hezekiah's uh, time. And then the additional, chapter 30, chapter 31. You ladies have been waiting for Proverbs 31. And that's a, it's, a, it's a tough animal to wrestle with. And we've got to understand, was Lemuel Solomon or not? And I've changed my mind on that probably 100 times in the last 25 years, okay? And I'm going to keep changing my mind until I settle on it and teach it as, uh, as I'm convicted. Anyway. This section does contain 375 single-line proverbs, again, depending on how you count it, depending on how you number them, and recognizing that the manuscripts have issues, manuscripts have glitches. But under the Masoretic uh, numbering, 375 single-line proverbs, and this number is the numerical value of the letters. When you spell out Solomon in the Hebrew, right, Mishle Shlomo, that uh, you have on your title screen there, Mishle Shlomo. So that word on the right is, uh, or on the left, reading right to left, that's the Shlomo, that's the name for Solomon. Add those up. Anyway, I don't buy into all this, but there are people that really, really get worked up over the, the numerology of things. And they try to prove that because it adds up to 375, that that's the, the numerical value of the letters of the Hebrew name Solomon that's given in the title of um, Hebrew, uh, Proverbs 10.1. The Proverbs of Solomon. And I think you've got to actually add up that whole phrase. You can't just add up Solomon to get that big number. Okay? But the Proverbs of Solomon. Take that phrase, add that up, giving a number to each letter as they do in some of their uh, systems. And you can make it read 375. And then you can kind of say, hey, that matches Proverbs 10.1 to Proverbs 22.16. And all right, fine. If, if that's the case, great. I think it's cool. Uh, does it matter? <laughs> I mean, does that really affect how I live my Christian life? I don't know. Anyway, but clearly though, however you handle it, when you get to, after you've read nine chapters of Proverbs and you think, okay, I'm, I'm really loving this book, and then you get, turn the page to Proverbs 10.1 and all of a sudden it says, the Proverbs of Solomon, you're like, what? You know, are we starting over again? Is this a reboot? What is this? And yes, it is a reboot. It is a new section heading and it is a significant section heading that we can't ignore as we realize that uh, that Solomon wrote thousands of, of, of proverbs beyond anything that's in this book, and plus uh, hymns and psalms, only two that are in the Bible, but he wrote multiple psalms and other things. So anyway, this is part of recognizing the difference between authorship and then the editors that put them in this order. Okay? Is that clear? Does that make sense? Because Solomon didn't write these in this order. He didn't sit down and write 31 chapters of Proverbs and say verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. They were placed in the order they were placed in by later scribes, editors, priests, prophets, um, all under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, okay, as far as that goes. David's 150 Psalms. He didn't write those in that order either, okay? But they were put into five books. They were put into the order that we have them now, 
and uh, all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as a part of, uh, of the canonization of the revealed text. The textual break in 22.17 is followed by additional such markers in 24.23, 25 31, and 31.1. And I accept all of those as valid textual markers. It didn't cause me to then create a, a, a very complicated, detailed outline. I felt it was simple enough to handle 1 through 9 as a unit, 10 through 24 as a unit, and 25 through 31 as a unit. I just took the book of Proverbs and broke it down into three general divisions. Again, 1 through 9, 10 through 24, and then 25 through 31. And that's how we started it uh, back in 2014, and I'm going to keep working with that. Meaning that after we finish each of these sections, we're going to go ahead and publish those notes as we did. The, the chapter 1 through 9 notes are available. They're sitting on the website. Uh, when we get through chapter 24, we're going to make 10 through 24 available, make those notes available, and uh, get those on the website. And then once we do 25 through 31, then we'll be able to just put the whole thing out there, get the whole book of Proverbs notebook uh, ready to go. What are these other markers? So again, the uh, the the marker in 2217 is not as obvious, not as obvious in the English, and um, depending on the Bible text you're reading, the publisher may ha not have put anything in there either. So um, the heading that we have in the Hebrew is this, incline your ear, okay? Incline your ear and hear, or the words of the wise. Hear the words of the wise. Well, haven't we already been reading the words of the wise up, up until now? Yes, we have, but this does seem to be something new. This seems to be something different. And the tone shifts too, by the way, in these verses that follow. And um, it starts to speak in the second person again. Not like a father to a son, but like a wise man to somebody that uh, maybe to maybe Solomon to Rehoboam or maybe a wise man to someone on the verge of, of stepping into an incredible responsibility. So apply your mind to my knowledge. The speaker has a, a particular recipient in view. It will be pleasant if you keep them within you. Your trust may be in the Lord. I have taught you today, even you. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge? So the tone returns back to something similar to what we had in the first nine chapters, but we don't have the my son pleadings, we don't have the listen to your mother pleadings. Uh, it's much more personal in those first nine chapters, it's more impersonal here, which leads me to kind of think more in terms of Solomon and Rehoboam. I mean, truly, what kind of a dad was Solomon anyway? What kind of relationship did he have with any of his children? You know, when you've got a thousand women that, that uh, you're making babies with and, and you've got uh, different uh, conflict there in the next generation. Anyway, you'll notice a few more of those things as well. Um, there's also a lot of, as, as we get to the, towards the end of the chapter, uh, we have a lot of al, al, al statements, okay? And that's not al dowdy, it's the Hebrew al which is the do not imperative, right? Do not associate. Do not be among those who give pledges. Do not 
move the ancient boundary. Do not. So we have all these do not statements uh, at the bottom of the of the chapter. And you'll spot those in the New American Standard. You'll spot those with the bold numbers for paragraph headings. Do not rob the poor. Do not associate. Do not be among those. Uh, do not move. And uh, you see those there. All the owl statements at the end of chapter 22. Then um, it continues across in chapter 23. It continues across. In fact, if you're reading an NIV and you're following those 30 sayings of the wise, you're, you're going all through these chapters. Chapter 30, 23, chapter 24. But when we get to chapter 25, here's the next marker. These also are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. Okay? And so this is, you know, centuries later. Solomon is long gone. Solomon is with the Lord. He's, he's uh, or not with the Lord, he's in Sheol. He's in paradise, Abraham's bosom. And uh, the, the book of Proverbs that existed as he died is being supplemented. It's being added to. And uh, in the, the men of Hezekiah, during uh, Hezekiah's time, they transcribed them. We'll have to discuss, well, what does that mean? <laughs> and and uh, place them in the canon. They attached them to the end of the, the Solomonic collection. They're all Solomonic, but they weren't canonized until this era of Israel's history. Including it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. I've got some theories. There's a lot of theories out there. But they transcribed them because maybe he wrote them in a script that, uh, that they wouldn't learn for a long, long time. Could that be the case? If it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search out a matter, was Hezekiah, was it his glory to search out this matter and actually um, transcribe or translate what Solomon had recorded? We don't know. We wonder about it, though. There's no question, though, that it's a, it's a heading. It's a heading, and so we handle these chapters separately than we handled the earlier chapters. And uh, we recognize that as a part of the canonization process. Also, chapter 30. The words of Augur, whoever he was. The son of Jacob, whoever he was. The oracle. All right, we know what that is. The man declares to Ithiel, whoever he was, and Ithiel to Ukul whoever he was. <laughs> we got puzzles. All right, we got puzzles. And uh, there's all kinds of know-it-alls and experts that think they, they understand all this, but we're going to have some uh, academic humility to, say, to be willing to, we're fine not knowing who these people are. Surely I am more stupid than any man. <laughs> I do not have the understanding of a man. Well, I feel stupid because I don't know who Augur and Jaka and Ithiel and Ukul are. Another heading in uh, 31.1. The words of King Lemuel, the oracle, which his mother taught him. Okay? And widely held to be Solomon himself uh, and his mother would be Bathsheba. Uh, that's probably the dominant tradition. It's not the only tradition. It's not the only understanding of, uh, of this. And, and this is where, again, you get down to this, how to be a good king, listen to your mom. And then, starting in verse 10, you have the acrostic poem, 
Uh, it's, it's written in such a way that it follows the Hebrew alphabet. It's like Psalm 119. And the first verse starts with Aleph and then Beth, Gimel, Daleth. You work your way through. So a Jewish girl growing up could memorize this and it helps in the scripture memory uh, if, if your Bible passage is alphabetized so that you can just think your way through the alphabet, think your way through the first word of each of these verses and, uh, and memorize and recite the acrostic uh, poem for what it is. All right, so those are the additional markers that we have to look forward to in our future studies. Uh, like I say, I'm not going to... We'll handle the break in verse 17 as, as we get to it. I'm not going to change the, the divisions that we, that we started way back in the day. We're just going to keep going as we've been going and producing these notes. The chapter begins with integrity and grace. Integrity and grace. This is the name, the reputation, our integrity. The chapter begins with integrity and grace, which are both better than material wealth. Each of them, both of them, uh, each of them is better than material wealth. And in the poetry of this, again, Proverbs 22, 1, a good name is to be more desired than great wealth. This is one of the better than Proverbs that we've had. We've had a few uh, leading up to this. We've had a number of them. The better than uh, structure of the proverb uh, and a good name is better than to be desired more than great wealth. In other words, if you have a choice, if it's one or the other, then go with the, the name, go with the reputation. Um, wealth, you know, nice to have it, but it's not necessary. God's faithful in every circumstance. And if we're going to sacrifice one for the other, in other words, if you have to sacrifice your name in order to accumulate wealth, you chose poorly. That's not what God would have you to do. What are you doing? And uh, the, uh, the things that you would sacrifice for the pursuit of wealth, uh, biblically speaking, uh, is a pretty short list, right? I mean, we're not here to be pursuing these things anyway. We're here to be pursuing the things of the Lord. And if he, uh, if he does choose to give material wealth, that's his call. Uh, all these things will be added to you. See, we're not pursuing them. Uh, we're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Likewise, favor, the Hebrew word chen, the Hebrew word for grace. Uh, this is uh, the unmerited favor, the grace that, that uh, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the grace that we have throughout the Old Testament. Again, better better than silver and gold. So we find the, the A and B part of this verse are in parallel, they're in tandem. They're both effectively saying the same thing, just uh, talking about your reputation on the one hand or talking about grace uh, on the one hand, using uh, wealth and using silver and gold. Those are obviously parallel. And uh, so we can, we can easily see the poetic structure that we're looking at here. All right. And in some respects, uh, let me just say one more thing. I should have put it in the, in the top heading of point one. Chapter 22 does contain a significant thematic break after verse six, uh, 16. Chapter 22 also serves as a miniature for the book of Proverbs altogether. So it's like in these 16 verses, in these 16 verses, we're going to get a miniature book of Proverbs right here. Verses 1 through 16 is the book of Proverbs in miniature. 
should have made that a continuation of point one. I'll rewrite that before next week. And so as you glance down through um, verses 1 through 16, uh, we're going to have an assortment of ideas. It's, it's going to be almost like a shotgun. It's going to be bouncing from one to the next to the next to the next. But what it's doing is it's recapping everything we've studied in the first 21 chapters. And so that includes putting money in perspective. That includes being humble before our Creator God. Uh, that includes uh, the difference between prudence and naive in verse 3. But tell you what, let's just take a glance here at, at verses 1 through 16 and, and you'll see what I'm talking about. So putting money in perspective there, we already looked at that in verse 1. Verse 2, the rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is maker of them all. Right? Haven't we seen that already? We've seen that in Proverbs. The, the creator-creature distinctions, the, the humility that we're supposed to have before our God and our Creator. Rich and poor, we've got this in common. The, uh, verse 3, the prudent sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. Well, we've had that multiple times in the first 21 chapters. Contrast between prudent and naive, but then also um, the contrast there when you... Are your eyes not even open to see the snare for what it is? We should have our eyes open. Verse 4, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. We've had that before as well. We're not, we're not pursuing riches, honor, and life for their own sake. We are honoring the Lord in wisdom. So humility and the fear of the Lord is what we're pursuing then the icing on the cake is when God gives the consequences, when God supplies the, the natural outworking, riches, honor, and life. Verse 5, thorns and snares are the, in the way of the perverse. He who guards himself will be far from them. This is another thing we've had repeatedly in the first 21 chapters. And um, the issues there. We want to in all our ways acknowledge him. He will direct our steps. He will make our path smooth. Uh, the, the, the thorns, the obstacles to the path, that's, that's the way of the fool. We want to go the way of wisdom. Verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, then when he is old he will not depart from it. We have nine chapters of Proverbs that, that feature this verse because it's, the, it's the, the pleading of a father and mother to train up their, their son. Verse 7, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. Hello, Dave Ramsey. That's, the <laughs> that's his, uh, if you've ever taken a Dave Ramsey seminar uh, or read a book or any of that, that's, he camps on that verse for, for hours at a time. But we've talked about that. In fact, um, being surety for your neighbor, why are you doing that? Escape from that. And uh, many of the earlier Proverbs have been dealing with these, with these financial issues. Verse 8, he who sows iniquity will reap vanity in the rod of his fury will perish. We've had that principle before. Verse 9, he who is generous will be blessed. He who gives some of his food, for he gives some of his food to the poor. We've discussed this, the, the, the uh, expression of wisdom in, in practical ways as uh, generous and gracious believers molded by the word of God. Drive out the scoffer and contention will go out. Even strife and dishonor will cease. Get rid of the troublemakers, okay? And who are you surrounding yourself with? Who are you associating with? That principle has been presented before. 
He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. The king is his friend. And uh, you don't want the king angry with you. You want the king to be smiling at you. And we've had uh, Proverbs already that have described how to, how to generate those two different responses. It gets reminded here. Also, it's kind of fun to reach a verse like that uh, in the, the same uh, time frame that we're in Colossians 3, learning how to have our speech seasoned with salt, how to have our speech with grace in every circumstance, that so we know how to respond to outsiders. So that'll be a nice parallel concept there. Verse 12, the eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the treacherous man. So uh, he's watching us. We walk before him. And um, that's who we're walking with. The sluggard. We've seen the sluggard many times. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the streets. Well, that's a good reason not to go to work. (laughs) Okay. And we've had several Proverbs in the first 21 chapters that have all dealt with the sluggard. There's more coming up. But you see, these 16 verses are really serving as as kind of a, a thumbnail for the whole book, representative of everything we've studied up till now. The mouth of an adulteress is a deep pit. He who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it. Again, with warning about the strange woman, particularly in the early chapters, the first nine chapters. But we've had some in chapters 10 and following as well, uh, warning about uh, the, the sexual dangers that, that a man can fall into or a, a person can fall into if they're not living in the Word of God. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. And um, again, We've had it before, spare the rod, spoil the child. We've had it in many, many contexts in the first nine chapters, but also in chapters 10 and following. He who oppresses the poor to make more for himself or who gives to the rich will only come to poverty. So that's the final piece here that, that wraps up these 16 verses, that really wraps up the, the thumbnail for the book of Proverbs right here. This paragraph serves as a representative of the entire book in so many ways. And then, of course, verse 17 begins the next section there, the words of the wise. Okay. There we go. So the chapter begins with integrity and grace. We start with integrity. We start with the name, Hashem, the name. One of the most important Hebrew words you'll ever learn is the name Shem, like Ham, Shem, and Japheth, right? And so Shem, or shame, I prefer to pronounce the, the E there as a longer A sound, so shame, it just, it means name, it means reputation, it means integrity, and uh, the name of God. He, he uh, upholds His name every time. He magnifies His word in accordance with His name. The name of God is, is to be revered, so much so that devout Jewish people won't even pronounce Yahweh out loud. They will substitute Adonai in its place, or they will, if they don't substitute Adonai, you know what they substitute? They substitute Hashem, the name, and they pray to Hashem, they pray to the name. In any event, used 857 times in the, in the Old Testament, which you might imagine, uh, everywhere from uh, you know, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of, you know, and he, you get names everywhere. He, uh, she named Cain because she has acquired a man-child from the Lord. 
So she called his name Cain. So we have, we have names all throughout the, the Bible. But significantly, the use of name is, is, is critical as it comes to God, as it comes to those that are called according to his name, those that, are, um, those that name the name of the Lord. Uh, there's, there are expectations. If, when, once you name the name of the Lord, you're to abstain from all wickedness. We have imperatives in the scripture as those that are no longer in Adam. We are redeemed. And it comes to the very name of the one who redeemed us. It comes to the very integrity of the one who gave himself in our place. So we have principles here. I think this touches on a theological crux in the angelic conflict. This name that is above all names. And, and how crushing for Satan, who in his fall was all about self-promotion and self-glorification, the five I wills that were all uh, about magnifying himself equal to and greater than the Most High God. And yet Jesus humbled himself, that he laid aside his privileges. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Could you imagine Satan doing such a thing? Not at all. <laughs> Could you imagine Satan humbling himself, coming incarnate humbly in, a, in the womb of a virgin and born and living a human life? Not for a minute. The, the disdain for us dust creatures is, is just seething everywhere that, that he voices it in the, in the scriptures. Anyway, the Hebrew word for name is, is spelled S-H-E-M, Shem. Strong's number is 8034. It's a different number, by the way, 8035 for the son of Noah. Um, although you can't tell in the Hebrew text. It's just, it's the same word. It's the same letters. It's the same name. But uh, he named his sons Ham, uh, Japheth, and Name. <laughs> okay, I'm going to name my kid Name. But that's what he did. Because it's more than just a name. It's a reputation. It's the integrity. And we're going to see this. So let's take a look at some of these verses. And I hope to convey this here today so you can see the, the real impact on this. Genesis 6, 4. I've got this coming up with the, the fallen angels and the human women and the, the uh, perversion of the seed of the woman. Remember, God had made a seed of the woman pro, uh, promise that the seed of the woman was going to crush the serpent's head. And so the, Satan's first line of attack then is, well, let's take care of that. Let's end humanity. Let's, uh, let's make sure that, that no human woman can produce a human child. And uh, the process that happened here. So it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Whomever they chose. And this seems to be unrestrained. This seems to be globally impacting whomever they chose. So much so that you start to wonder well, what are the human men doing? <laughs> Are they marrying any human women or are all the women taken now at this point? You know, when you've been conquered and your women have been taken, uh, the men are generally killed or enslaved or taken off or, or whatever. Whomever they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with humanity forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. So he set a limit to the perversion that he was going to permit in his permissive will. And Noah was called to be the preacher of righteousness for that 
time frame. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. Some of the most important words in the chapter there. Because the flood killed all of the Nephilim that were on earth in those days. No Nephilim survived the flood. Only eight souls survived the flood. That was Noah, his wife, their three sons, and their three wives. The Nephilim were all killed in those days. So how did they come back? How did Nephilim return to the earth if they were all killed in the flood? Well, this verse tells us. Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When, here's the process, sons of God came into the daughters of man. That's the idiom. It means they fornicated with the human women. The sons of God had sex with human women. And they bore children to them. The human women birthed the, uh, the hybrid offspring. Angelic fathers, human mothers. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown, men of the name, men of reputation, fame, renown, men of Hashem. And so we end up with the sons of God and we end up with the hybrid sons of sons of God, men of renowned men of the name the lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent notice the universal language here every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually every only continually (laughs) that's redundant and repetitive and reinforcing okay only evil every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. All right. So this is the first use there. The name. Look how significant that is in the angelic conflict. 11.4. The Tower of Babel. Now we're done with the flood. You think man would learn its lesson. Wow. You know, we better walk humbly with our God because we're the last of humanity left. He preserved us and we're we're going we're to obey that command to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. We're going to spread out. No, they don't. So uh, the whole earth used the same language, the same words, or few words really. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. So they found a place, a plain, in the land of Shinar and they settled there. God had told them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. He didn't say find a nice spot and settle there. He said fill the earth. But they settled. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and uh, a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves... Hashem, a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Or otherwise, we will obey what God told us to do. (laughs) Okay? Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Isn't that what He told you to do when you got off the ark? Remember, Ham, Shem, and Japheth are still alive. Noah's still alive. They lived centuries after the flood even to, you know, the, 
multiple generations. Now, lifespan started to shrink. Lifespan started to drop. But uh, I forget, six, seven generations now that, that Noah saw? More that Shem saw? Depending on which manuscripts you believe, Shem may have met Abraham ten generations later. Okay, I'm a little rusty on my numbers, so don't hold it against me. But this is what we have coming up in Genesis. There's a lot of work we've got to do in Genesis 10 and 11. All right. So the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the Son of Men had built. Notice too, when Cain gets driven out, uh, the first thing he does is build a city. God puts a mark on him and he flees and he builds a city. Now here they are after the flood going the way of Cain, building a city. And they're trying to create a name for themselves. This is satanic. This is what Satan was going to do. This is what the five I wills are all about, making his own name. Making his own name. I don't want to make my own name. I want God to give me my new name when I stand before him and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And he allows me to, gives me a white stone with my new name and the hidden manna and the other rewards that we have to look forward to. I'm not going to make my own name, but that's what they're going to do. Make a name for themselves. Genesis 12, 2. Probably the most overlooked part of the Abrahamic covenant. The Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Why did he take Lot with him? I don't know. In fact, not only was Lot family that he should have separated from, he was a nephew. Um, there are different traditions as far as when Abraham got married to Sarah that maybe Abraham was still a single man at this point. That he had a quickie wedding to Sarah to take her with him as well. Anyway, we'll discuss that. Go, go forth from your father's house to the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. We pay attention to that very frequently. I will bless you. We pay attention to that quite frequently. And make your name great. What does that mean? Do we pay as much attention to that third phrase as we do to make you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great? Because then it's the totality of those three atoms that then produces, and so you shall be a blessing. And so you shall be a blessing. Until his name is great, how does he be a blessing? I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. That one gets a lot of attention. This is really my prime voting criteria when I'm voting for president, when I vote for an administration. Is this administration that's going to bless the Jewish people or is this an administration that's going to curse the Jewish people? And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So when we have this covenant promise, but notice, I will make your name great. So the name of Abraham is going to be great. That gets my attention. Exodus 9.16 In... Um, the conflict with Pharaoh and why he's, his heart is hardened and why he's slow to release them, in fact, refuses to release Israel. And God speaks through Moses, but talking about um, how he gets glorified in this. 
He says, but indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power, in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. I mean, he could have killed Pharaoh on day one and just taken the people out of there and been done with it. But the purpose for allowing Pharaoh to remain heart of heart, to remain in power, to remain um, as obstinate as he was, part of his glory, to show my power, to proclaim my name through all the earth. This is a big deal. So much so that God orchestrates human events, national events. He orchestrates <coughs> all the details for the deliverance of His people in such a way as to not just deliver His people, but to do so in a way that He gets the glory, that it's His name that's magnified, that it's His power that is obvious. So Israel can't boast that they delivered themselves or that it was by their might. It was God's power and it's for the glory of God's name to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. Why a good name is better than silver and gold, than great wealth. All right. Joshua 9.9. By the way, there's 857 of these. I'm not taking you to all of them, (laughs) okay? I'm giving you about a dozen or so. But I'm giving you the significant ones that tie as a, as a Bible survey, as an Old Testament survey, where you can see the impact that the name of Yahweh has for Israel and for the Gentiles that, around them that were terrified. And clearly, these guys, these liars, these posers, um, yeah, the Gibeonites here in Joshua chapter 9, They were local, but they tricked uh, Joshua and the Israelites into thinking that they weren't local because they knew that all the cities were getting crushed, they were getting conquered, they were getting destroyed, and they knew they couldn't fight against the God of Israel, so they turned to the satanic craftiness and Joshua fell for it. So they acted crafty. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they also acted craftily and set out as envoys and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys, wineskins, worn out and torn and mended. They acted all frazzled like they were coming from a great distance. Worn out and patched sandals on their feet, worn out clothes on themselves. All the bread of their provision was dry and become crumbled. And it's all an act. It's like a big drama production. And they go to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country, now therefore make a covenant with us. And the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you are living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? See, they got a little skepticism. That's good. We should have skepticism. But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? Servants have come from a very far country because of the name of the Lord, the Shem, because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard the report of Him and all that He did in Egypt. So understand when Satan wants to get extra crafty in his crafty lies, he throws a little religious lingo in there. He uses the name of the Lord. He maybe throws a Bible verse out there and you start thinking, yeah, okay, I get that. 
All that he did to the two kings of the Amorites were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, to Og, king of Bashan. Those were a couple of Nephilim kings who were at Ashtaroth. So our elders, and we said, take provisions. And um, in verse 12, this our bread was warm when we took it for our provision out of our houses on the day we left to come to you. Now behold, it is dry, it has become crumbled. See, look, here's proof. This bread was warm when we left town, you know, months ago to travel all this great distance. So these are the props that they're trying to use. These wineskins were new. Behold, they're torn. These are clothes and our sandals are worn out because of the very long journey. Some of this is interesting too because we know, did you read, you read, we're at the end of Deuteronomy now in the, in the reading for our daily scripture reading, but Israel went 40 years in the wilderness and never had to replace their shoes. Their shoes never wore out. Their bags, their, all the stuff, God was so miraculous in their travels. So it's probably been a while since they've seen worn out sandals and worn out wineskins. And this, the proof, the evidence that these Gibeonites are showing them, you know, clearly had an effect. The men of Israel took some of the provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. That's the big mistake right there. <laughs> All right. So you started with some skepticism and then you listened to what they had to say and you never stopped to pray about it. All right? You never stopped to pray about it. You never stopped to inquire of the Lord. And Moses was constantly inquiring of the Lord. Any prophet could inquire of the Lord and very frequently, even without inquiring of the Lord, the prophets of Israel would receive daily briefings. You know, the angel of the Lord would show up and say, hey, by the way, about this time tomorrow... A man's going to come walking through here looking for his father's lost donkeys. Okay? Don't worry about that. The donkeys are taken care of, but that's the man you want to take and anoint as king of Israel. And, and so Samuel receives a briefing a day ahead of time. And then sure enough, the very next day, here comes Saul looking for his father's donkeys. And, and uh, the Lord says, that's who I told you about yesterday. And so Samuel would go and, 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 and obey the Lord and do what he had to do there. So you know, it makes, it's kind of curious to me, you know, if this briefing, why didn't uh, Joshua say to these Gibeonites, you know, I, I didn't receive a briefing about you guys. I would expect that the Lord would have said about this time tomorrow, these folks are going to show up and take them and make them your servants or anything like that. There was no briefing and they never uh, inquired of the Lord to find out. So Joshua made peace with them, made a covenant with them, swore an oath to them, but then three days later they found out they're locals. They live here. We got, we got hoodwinked. Now here's the thing. How serious is the God of covenants, the God of truth? They made a vow. They made a covenant. Now yes, they were bamboozled. Yes, they were lied to. Doesn't change. They took a vow. They made a covenant. And so they're bound. Anyway, that's the, the story there. 1 Samuel 12, 22. And the promises here, um, they, they want a king. Samuel's giving them a king. He says, you're going to regret this. But even though you're asking for a king, God's not going to abandon you. The Lord will not abandon His people on account of His great name because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for Himself. If Yahweh abandons you, then His name suffers. 
and he won't allow himself to do that. It's on account of his great name. Even though they angered him when they asked for a king, because Yahweh says, look, I'm your king. What do you need a king for? You want to be like the nations around you? You're not like the nations around you. You're mine. But they asked for a king anyway. But on account of his great name, uh, likewise in 1830, um, David has a name. And uh, he's serving Saul. (laughs) The Philistines weren't afraid of Saul, but they were afraid of David. Oh, David's fighting for King Saul? Now we got trouble. So the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened so often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so his name was highly esteemed. Saul was trying to kill David. Saul uh, named uh, made and said, 200 Philistine foreskins is the dowry for my daughter, thinking that that would do the trick, that uh, David would get killed trying to, trying to obtain 200 Philistine foreskins and and, and David just you know, doubled the amount and brought him back and said, here we go. And he built a name for himself, highly esteemed. Now, when we come back, we're going to talk about this. We want a, a highly esteemed name. A, 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 a well-regarded name is more preferable to great wealth. So how do we do that? Do we got to go kill 200 Philistines and take their foreskins? Well, <laughs> if so, I will never have a good name, let me tell you. The... Um, but, but how do we obtain a good name? And do we do it Satan's way or do we do it David's way? Because David is the type of Christ in this, okay? There's more. Uh, oh, there's a whole lot more. And I'm just out of time. So 2 Samuel 7, that's the Davidic covenant. 1 Kings 1, 1 Kings 4, the transition from David to Solomon. And then all the uses of Shem that we've had so far in Proverbs, from Proverbs 10, Proverbs 18, 21, 22, where we are today, and then we'll have some final uses coming up in Proverbs 30, the words of Augur, whoever he was, talked about the, uh, the name. So that's where we'll pick it up next week. Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for truth. I thank you for a good name, and I thank you for grace. And Father, um, open our eyes to see our applications because we understand that we, uh, we, have na- we name the name of the Lord, that we are yours. And uh, that's the name that we present to this lost and dying world. So we uh, appreciate your grace that makes these things possible. We appreciate the name and the grace that, uh, that you've freely bestowed and that we freely receive and that we freely give. Thank you for these wonderful doctrines. I pray as we study them that we'll know them better than ever before, that we'll live them consistently. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.